based on the scripture reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight we come to the last of our uh, four-week series uh, where we're taking time to renew our vision and our values as a church. And we've been working through uh, four words that the leaders of Red Mountain uh, came up with, I think now a couple years ago, uh, worship, grace, community, and place. And tonight we're going to look at uh, the idea of place. Last week we looked at community from Ephesians chapter 4 and We noticed how uh, the new life that the gospel brings to to God's people through the scriptures, how instrumental the scriptures are in creating a new community that is built on and around Jesus Christ at the center of that community. And tonight, we're going to look at this idea of place, and place, uh, especially if you're uh, newer to Red Mountain, it's a rather... uh, I always, it's kind of a Gnostic term. <laughs> doesn't say a whole lot. It's not very descript. So what do we mean when we talk about place? What we mean when we talk about place is very simply the south side of the city of Birmingham. That as a church, that's where we understand uh, ourselves to be located. That's where God has planted this church. That's our um, field of ministry, if you will. And as uh, any, I think anybody can attest to, uh, just driving around Birmingham, there is an awful lot of change happening, significant change. Buildings that have been untouched for a very long time are all of a sudden getting a facelift. And the downtown is undergoing incredible amounts of renewal and uh, It's exciting to see life come back into the city. There's lots of change. I think it's fairly safe to say that on any uh, given day, if you open up a newspaper, the amount of cultural change that we see happening in our society at large is staggering. Especially if if you are either north of 50 or you have parents uh, who are north of 50, I have any conversation around the dinner table, almost always, at least when I talk to my parents, they cannot believe how much cultural change and turmoil that there is. Uh, And so the question I want us to wrestle with tonight as we look at this idea of place is this. How should we negotiate Christian identity and difference in the midst of cultural change? I've taken that question right out of the quote that's on the early pages of your worship folder. I might put it differently and ask it this way. How should we be different from the world and yet at the very same time for the world? Does the gospel 
teach us that? Does it give us the resources to be that kind of people? That's what I want to look at tonight. In 1 Peter, it's a book that's written to Christians scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. If you look at verse 1 of the book, these are people, Christians, that Peter's writing to who live in any number of different places, and they themselves are facing these very same questions. How are they to live as a distinct people, with a Christian identity in a context that's changing all the time. And that is by no means often very um, warm or welcome to the claims of the Christian gospel. So that's what I want to look at tonight. And I want us to see in this passage, it's only, uh, we're looking at four verses tonight. But in, in, these, in these verses, Peter gives us three things that we need in order to live as God's people in our particular place here in the south side of Birmingham. And those three things that we need, we need to know who we are. We need to have a very clear gospel identity. We need to know what we are called to do, which I'm going to call gospel engagement. How does the gospel compel us to be engaged where we live? And then lastly, we need to know where to find the help to do it. We need the gospel resources to be a church that doesn't exist for our own sake, but exists for our our neighbors and our friends, people who perhaps would never dare darken the door of a church. Where do we find the resources to do that? So first, let's look at the gospel identity. Notice in verses 9 through 10, these two verses are nothing but Peter laying out who a Christian, what a Christian is. Notice he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of those descriptions come right out of the Old Testament that were applied directly to Israel. And in a very staggering way, Peter takes those same descriptions and applies them to the New Testament church. And then he says, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were once, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These verses are shot through with, what does it mean to say that you're a Christian? What is your identity? And in the Bible, identity determines how you live. How you live does not determine your identity. Think about that. Your identity determines how you live. How you live does not determine your identity. That's, in fact, the exact opposite of how I think most of us live on any given day and certainly how our broader culture views your identity. Your identity is something that you earn. It's something that you accomplish. It's accrued based on your competencies, based on your education, based on your experience, your successes, or even your failures. But I want you to see here that in the Bible, your identity determines how you live. Here's, here's an example. And let me try to do this by, by pitting uh, religion against the gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. How I live determines my identity. But the gospel says, I am fully loved and accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. My identity 
determines how I live. Those are two totally different uh, heart motivations, if you will. Those are two totally different ways to think of, to know who you are and to think about how you live your life. And I think that one of the greatest lies that we all buy into is that our identity can actually be earned. And one of my uh, favorite ways of, of making this point came from uh, actually a book on preaching uh, where the, the writer uh, makes a point, uh, a different kind of point than preaching, but he says this. He says, one's search for self ultimately is fruitless because it seeks to find that which can only be given by another. In short, we may seek self-identity and hope to find ourselves, but the hoped-for result never occurs through our own efforts. We seek ourselves, but are finally found. One's identity is the gift of another's love. So if I had to, in a, in, in a very succinct way, summarize what are verses 9 to 10 all about, they are all about the gift of God's love to sinners who don't deserve it. And I, I wish I had time to go through each of these descriptions tonight, I did, but I just don't. Perhaps we'll be able to come back someday and do that. But I want to draw attention to just two. I want you to, to look with me here at uh, a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, the idea that you are, that the church is a holy nation in the Bible, holy in its most simple form basically means separate, uh, set apart, distinct. What this is saying is that as God's people, you are a distinctive people and you belong to Him. That means to be a Christian, that it means that at the core of your identity, you are fundamentally different by grace from someone who does not trust in Jesus. That the church as a whole is a distinct community. It's different. But then notice a royal priesthood. This idea here is the idea that as, as a community of people, collectively, you could say what Peter means here is that we are a kingdom of priests. Now think for a moment. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of uh, teaching and description about the priesthood. What were the priests supposed to do? The most basic function of a priest was a mediator. They mediated between God and God's people. They were the ones who connected those who were not priests to God himself in the worship of the temple. And, and here Peter applies the same idea to us as a church, to the whole church. That our primary task is to be a mediator between God and the world. Another way to put this is, how is the world going to learn about and discover this God? That's our task. Which is precisely why, if you look in verse 9, after giving these descriptions, Peter says, 
you know, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That you would proclaim the excellent, the beauty of God's grace. Now, what might that involve? This task as both a distinct people, a holy nation, but also a people fully engaged, a royal priesthood. You think again about those priests, all these people coming to offer sacrifices. Particularly, think of uh, lepers as an example. How involved priests had to be, how much they needed to know where these people were coming from in order to help them. To be a priest meant that you were fully engaged and yet you're also as a holy nation different and distinct. And you have this task to proclaim the beauty of God's grace. What is that beauty? What is it that we as a body of people, both in word and deed, are to proclaim to one another as we worship together, but also in our common life together here in in the south side of Birmingham? There are three things we see here that describe the beauty of this grace. He says, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about conversion. A radical change at the heart level where by God's grace you cease to live for yourself and instead live for God's glory and discover what you were really made for, who you were made for. And the love that he pours out, it's, it's a way of talking about the transition from death to life, spiritually. But then also, there's a gift of a new community. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That there is a place for you to belong. You're no longer left to yourself. That the church is God's way of taking care of you this side of heaven. And then lastly, when he says here, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, there's the gift of bottomless mercy. That sin's penalty and power have been conquered. They've been vanquished in Jesus. That's your identity. That's what a gospel identity is all about. And, and therefore, if we're ever to love and serve the place where God has planted us here, we must know who we are. We must not forget who we are. We must not replace this identity with identity, an identity that you or I might prefer. But it's this identity that we must know, and we also must know this task that he's given us to proclaim the beauty of his grace. So what might it look like for us to do that? It brings me to the second point here about gospel engagement, which is really what we see in verses 11 to 12. Notice how he describes the church here. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Those are really important terms because if you think about what we just said, a gospel identity means that we as a people are different because we belong to this God. And yet we have a a unique task that isn't... uh, that doesn't circle the wagons, but actually pushes us outward. But this idea of sojourners and exiles, what that means is to be a sojourner, it stresses the idea that you're, you're, uh, you're kind of on the way. 
it, it stresses transience, that this is not, it's not your true home. That we're a people on the way. But what it does mean is that wherever you are as a sojourner, that really is home for as long as you're there. Or the idea of an exile, it stresses the idea that you're, you're not really a citizen. You, don't, you weren't born there. Uh, this isn't your, uh, where you have rights and privileges like another citizen would. It gives an idea, to the, it helps us to realize that while we are here, our true citizenship is in heaven. That though we are citizens here of this country, the United States, uh, there is a citizenship which goes deeper, that lasts longer, that's more permanent than even our citizenship here. And what these two words mean that describe us as sojourners and exiles, it means that the church is a contrast community. A contrast community. Now, what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is what Peter's teaching us here by these, these, these terms of sojourners and exiles and giving us, reminding us of this identity is that we are to be in the world, different from the world, and yet for the world. That's what a contrast community is. It does not mean that you're against the world. Contrast doesn't mean that. But a contrast community, according to the gospel, means that you're fully in it, different from it, and yet for it. That's a very hard, delicate balance, but that's, the, that's what gospel engagement is in our place here in the south side of Birmingham. So let's look. What does that mean a little bit more as a contrast community? Peter gives us two, two ideas to, to anchor us. In verse 11, he goes on and he says, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What's he saying? Well, gospel engagement must be self-critiquing. That's what he's telling us. That you cannot be engaged in the world for the sake of the world and not be self-critiquing. Not look at your own heart first. Look at the ways in which you are tempted. The ways in which sin still in many ways bubbles over in your life and wreaks havoc. Either in breaking relationships, creating fear, distrust, insecurity. It's self-critiquing. We first have to begin with our own lives. He's very realistic here about the challenges and the struggles of gospel engagement for the normal everyday Christian and we as a community. And what this means here, by Peter beginning with this verse in verse 11 and saying this, is that God doesn't call other people to repent of things that he doesn't also call his people to repent of. God is not going to look at people outside the church and call them to repent of things that he's not also going to call you to repent of. That's what it means that gospel engagement must be self-critiquing. But also, look in verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. It must be 
gospel engagement must be outwardly compelling. As a contrast community, that means that what we say must find expression in how we live. It's not enough to just say the words. We're called to actually exercise and live this good news. Honorable lives, good lives, beautiful lives. And the result should be that when people who do not yet know Jesus see the way Christians care about where they live and the people they live with, it should at least create dissonance in them about who is this God that you say you believe in that would lead you to live that way. And at very best, they themselves would come to know this God, to glorify this God, which in the context is nothing less than that they themselves would proclaim the beauty of his grace, having experienced it for themselves. Now, let me try to summarize this for you. What's a very simple way to take what Peter's teaching us here in a way that you and I can remember, and it can become part of our common language together? Really, what I think Peter is teaching us here is relational integrity. Relational integrity. What he's teaching us here is that we need to be like the people with whom we live and work and recreate with and serve with, go to school with. We need to be different. We need to be unlike them. And we need to be fully engaged with them. So what does it mean for us to be like? Well, Christians need to be fully involved in the daily affairs of the place in which we live. Where you work, where you go to school, where you eat, where you shop, where you serve. And one of the main reasons why that's so important is because, you know, a lot of times I think uh, evangelism gets treated as um, a discrete set of skills that you are um, taught how to use, and you go do it on somebody and hope that it takes. But what I want you to think about is that evangelism is much more difficult and complicated and nuanced in our current day and time. The best way, I think, to do evangelism is to actually let people see what it would look like if they were to become a Christian. Because your life is so involved with them and they've gotten to know you and what you believe that they begin to realize, oh, if I became a Christian, that's what I would kind of look like. It's outwardly compelling. Well, what would it mean for us to be unlike? Well, it means simply that our lives need to be marked by integrity Generosity, hospitality, sympathy, a willingness to forgive, even when it's really hard. Uh, Our lives need to be shaped by God's word, especially in how we treat our bodies. How we think about and talk about and use sex. How we use power that we have, how we handle adversity, how we seek and pursue justice and mercy 
in our city. Those are all ways in which the gospel calls you to be distinctive and different and unlike but yet for where you live. So like, unlike, and engaged, engaged simply means that you're willing to be visible. You're willing to be known. And that may not always be received with a welcome. So let me give you a test here. I want to give you a test for yourself. We've got three different Christians. You have an A Christian, a B Christian, and a C Christian. Those are not grays. (laughs) They're just labels. An A Christian is a person who has lots of friends who uh, are not Christians. They would consider themselves skeptics or or non-believers. Lots of friends. uh, They spend lots of time together. They go on trips together. But um, the whole idea of of the, the A Christian, his or her faith is not really much a part of those relationships at all. In fact, it's almost non-existent. Then you've got the B Christian. And the B Christian is the person who doesn't really have lots of of friends who would consider themselves skeptics or or non-believers. But they're very willing to share their belief in Jesus and make that very public and very known. But they don't have the relational capital for that to be a compelling thing. Whereas the A Christian may have that relational capital, but the gospel never really makes it into how they talk about their lives and what they're dealing with and struggling with or in how they wrestle with questions and struggles in their lives. Then you have the C Christian. The C Christian is the person who has begun to discover how to bring those two together where they have the deep relationships and involvement and they're engaged and their gospel identity is allowing them to be themselves. It's giving them the freedom to be who they really are in Jesus even when aligning yourself with Jesus may get a snicker and may be viewed as um, intellectual anti-intellectual or not very sophisticated. That's what a C Christian is. That's what we are called to pursue as a community together. And so, how do you do that? How do you get the resources to do that? I want you to see here that everything I'm trying to talk about really is embodied for us and done for us in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Very uh, briefly here. In Hebrews, we learn two things about Jesus. That Jesus became like us in every way. And he was without sin. He was totally different than us in every way that we needed him to be different. Here is what the gospel is. When you take what we're talking about, about our gospel identity and gospel engagement, and then you ask, how does the gospel matter here? The answer is that Jesus, he came into the world. He was totally different from the world. And yet he was for the world. That's 
where we find the resources to become that, that kind of community that's in the world, different from it, and yet for it. It's our gospel identity and our, our engagement have to flow out of our relationship with Jesus. Now, this part of our passage isn't in the printed for you tonight, but listen to what earlier in this same chapter Peter says. He says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Do you hear that? Earlier, you are a chosen race, a people for his own possession. You are precious. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, the resources that we need, they're found in Jesus being like us in every way we need him to be, different than us in every way we needed him to be, and he was so committed and for the world, even to the point of suffering and dying on the cross. So how do you and I grow in these things? How do we become a church that loves our place the way that Jesus loved the world? It means we need to be connected to him. We need to come to him. It's as we come to him in faith, and not only that, it's through this relationship with Jesus by grace, through faith alone, that he promises that he will sustain us. That no matter what happens, no matter what people think, he will never let you go. Now, remember the question that we began with. How should we negotiate Christian identity and difference in the midst of cultural change. How are we supposed to do that? That's a question I hope that you and I and we as a community never stop asking. But in doing so, we also must always come back to these things that Peter teaches us in this this passage. Who you really are. What does it mean to be loved by God? To receive the identity that he gives We always must come back to this task. What does it mean to be engaged, to be self-critiquing, outwardly compelling, have relational integrity, all of which we find in the gospel through Jesus? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage and ask that you would be with us as we wrestle with it and uh, pray that uh, as we've talked about worship and grace and community and place over these past weeks, we pray that your gospel would win at Red Mountain Church and that you would continue to grow us and mature us, help us to understand the gospel in new and deeper ways such that we would continue to love each other, but especially to love the place that you put us and the people that we live with and work with and our neighbors with. Father, would you please do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.